0: turn to one of the best Psalms in the Bible. They're all good, but sometimes some jump out at you more often than others do. In Psalms 32, if you will, tonight, Psalms 32, I'd like to read the first eight verses of Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moistures turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledged my sin unto thee, And mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgression unto the Lord. and Thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Selah, again, that means pause and think about it. For this shall everyone that is godly pray unto thee in time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great water they shall not come nigh unto him. Thou art my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. You have to like that. Not too many years ago, I was in the quest of something, seeking after something. Actually, it was guidance on what to do if, and how to do this, and what should I do, and, and how can I know for sure? And my, my eyes fell on verse eight, or I had a, one of those little cards that has a scripture printed on it. But anyway, verse eight came up. I have loved these words ever since. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way thou shalt go. So it really is not for me to try to figure it out. I just have to listen to him when he speaks to me about that. That's true for all of us here tonight. Amen. But we're going to go back to verse 1 and come down through where I read. And I want to title the, uh, the message tonight, Our Sin, Its Effect, and the Blessing of Its Remedy. Our sin and its effect and the blessing of its remedy, or you might say its removal. Sin is the big subject in people's lives. It's made little of in most people's lives. But in the church and in in the eyes of God, it is the one thing, the most disastrous thing that ever happens in a man's life is that he allows sin to rule him. Because your life consists of either you serving sin or serving God. You can't serve both. Either sin will reign in your life to your death, or God will reign in your life to your life. You either win or you lose, and the choice is yours. That's the biblical message about sin. I'm reminded tonight in Genesis, in chapter 4, whenever God spoke to Adam in the garden, and he said to him, if you do not well, sin lieth at the door. And its desire is for you. So sin is not only a something you do, but there is a somebody behind what you choose to do. In other words, sin is a choice. You can't make me sin. You can provoke me. You can entice me. But you can't make me sin. Sin is a choice that I make. If I sin tonight, if I sin with my life, if you all out there sin at all, it's because you chose to sin. Sin was not a mistake. It was a choice. And what it does is cut you off from the Lord. God is pure and God is holy. He doesn't tolerate sins like we do. We tolerate the least little sins and the littlest things that happen, and we don't have much of a problem with it. But this psalm is a whole lot about repentance, what it does, being forgiven, and having a relationship with God that is free from sin and its power. This is uh, one of those psalms, there are eight of these psalms, they are penitentiary psalms, are the psalms of repentance. There's six or seven of these, maybe eight of these in the book of Psalms. Psalm 51 is one of those about David uh, repenting. Psalm 143, Psalm 38. And these are psalms about what sin has done to these men who are writing, the effect that sin has had on them, and their awareness of what sin does. Again, we make light of sin. We don't pay much attention to it. We seem to think because this age of tolerance that we're in, when everything is being watered down and little as light is made of serious things, nothing is really serious anymore, and people are just taking everything for granted. It's a spirit. It's an anti-Christ spirit in the last days. And it settles in people's lives to where you quit being so concerned about those little things in your life, the little foxes. Oh, come on. And then you get this, oh, God, he's not going to, he knows you're just in the flesh, and God knows you can't help it, and everybody, nobody's perfect, everybody's going to sin. I mean, come on. And you begin to reason within yourself to your destruction. That sin is not as big a deal as we've made it out to be, because look around, everybody does. There's no way that you, we can keep from it. Remember, we're going to lose our temper. We're going to flare up. We're going to use a word we shouldn't use and act the way we shouldn't act or maybe look the other way or take something that doesn't belong, a pencil. I mean, come on. Don't make a big deal out of that. And the next thing you know, when you begin to allow a little, you begin to allow a little more, and then you begin to allow a little bit more, and the day will come in which you have seared your conscience, until you no longer experience conviction about anything. And you look at all the world, the direction the world's going, and, and the indifference. I have never seen such tolerance in people to sinful ways, to sinful dress and sinful acts, sinful language, sinful music. Sinful, just so much is just all about everything that's not of God. It's like God doesn't factor into anything in so much of our society. And to preach about sin today is to, to be viewed as a throwback to some other age, which is fine with me because the one I started out in was pretty good, I mean, as far as the way it turned out. And I know the only one thing that can cut me off from God and can keep me from enjoying what he's promised me, and that's sin. One thing. Only one thing. That's sin. To quote God in the Garden of Eden, if you're not doing well, if things aren't going the way they should go for you, as he's promised, the problem is sin. Sin lieth at the door. It knocks on your door every day. Its enticements are new just like God's word is. His enticements and his provocations are new every morning. Just one more day of your life to keep allowing yourself things that the preacher says you shouldn't, you know, what's he know? And you begin to just ease on into things. And you don't even realize, like the frog in water, when you put him in water and you turn up the heat, he doesn't know he's going to die in a boiling water. He can't feel it. It just comes on gradually. And then he gets to the point where he can't get out of it. And then when he wants to get out of it, he can't because he's captured now by the water. And he he dies like that. And what a tragedy that is. What a tragedy that has to be and what a terrible thing that it is. The biggest tragedy in humankind, the biggest tragedy that can happen in anybody's life is for sin to reign in their life. Because that means at the end of that life, you die forever you're done. It did not have to be. While God could have left us alone, He constantly opened our eyes. We saw things. We felt something. I shouldn't do that. We felt bad about it until one day you felt nothing anymore. We persisted in going our own way and doing our own things, and we were consumed by our sins. Looking again in verse 1 and 2. There are three words for sin here, transgressions against God. He mentions first of all, he said, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Blessed is he whose sin is covered. And blessed is a man unto whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Now, again, there's three words. One, transgression. And the next one is the word sin, which is a big word generally for all wrongs. And then there's a word iniquity. Now, I believe that you could put it in this context. There's three words that covers three areas. I think transgression covers how a man relates to God's word. He transgresses the word. He misses the mark. He sees what it wants. He sees what has been said, and he comes short of it without doing much of anything about it, and just allows that to happen, looks around maybe, like I just said, nobody else is there, so I'm not the only one that's going to perish, or I'm not the only one doing this wrong. He becomes a transgressor. He begins to tolerate his failings and his weaknesses and his lack of. And the other word is sin, which has to do with how, more or less, how you relate to God, God's law, how you come short of that again. You don't relate to God right. You don't relate to his word right, iniquity. The word means twisted, corrupted, and it has more of a view to yourself, how you twist and corrupt things through reasoning, through logic, through things of that sort. You begin to rest the scriptures because you don't want it to mean that, so you look at, well, now, you know, after all, it could mean this, it could mean that. I mean, who's to say what it means? I mean, who, who knows? I mean, my opinion is as good as his. Well, I don't think any one man knows everything. Do you? Well, no. Well, then what difference? I mean, who knows what it is? The Bible's full of things like that. Nobody can know all of that. And so you begin to rest and reason like that. Next thing you know, you can read anything in the Bible you want to read. Hear whatever you want to hear from some religious source. It has no effect upon you because of iniquity. Iniquity is a word that's also translated lawless. A man who is without a law or is a law unto himself. What he does, he determines is good enough or is okay because then he gives his reasons. Well, I'm not the only one, after all, who can know all of this like I just said and blah, blah, blah. So he begins to make his own rules. Churches are full of people like that. Absolutely full of people that are lawless and iniquitous in their thinking. Now, the Bible says if you're not like that, he says you're blessed. Because if you are like that, then you're living in sin. You're a transgressor. You're a sinner. You're an iniquitous iniquitous person, and and you have cut yourself off. Look at verse 3. When I kept silence... Now, by keeping silent, I think the phrase here, when I kept silent... It means that though I'm aware of what I'm doing, I'm not dealing with it. While I am aware of my failings, I mean I can't read much in the Bible or hear much of a sermon at some point in this activity. I'm gonna I'm gonna get convicted about something. Now, either I will, as you use his words, either I will keep silent about it and just go, well. Eh. Uh, I don't know. This is the age you're living in right now. This is that age. That indifferent, I want it my way uh, age. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And when you keep silent and you don't deal with it, this is what you find in verse 3. He said, when I kept silence, my bone waxed old through my roaring, all the day long. So you begin to tolerate sin in your life. You begin to tolerate weaknesses in your life. You begin to tolerate things that you know God has spoken unto you about. You know you've left more than one meeting or read more than one verse in which you got convicted about something, and you said to yourself, I need to deal with that, but you didn't. And you look at your life, you think of this, you look at your life and you know you're not blessed. Oh, you can say, well, I'm blessed with good health. Good. But you know that in light of all the things that God has promised, all the wonderful things that you found yourself wishing you had instead of expecting to have, you know that you're not blessed with all these wonderful things that God has promised. Now, somebody told you, well, that's not for everybody. I think God, you know, God blesses some people, but I think other people probably aren't blessed for whatever reason, and, and you can't just get blessed. Well, I beg to differ with you. I believe you can get blessed. I believe God's terms are the way you ought to live. This is the life that you should live. And if you live as he says, I think you should be blessed. Let me read one. you even have to open to this one. Blessed is the man, same word. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the way of what? Nor sitteth in the seat of the, or standeth in where, stand, walk, and sit, Psalm 1. But verse 2, but his delight is in channel 6. No, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he doth, Meditate and ponder day and night. He shall be. What shall he be? He shall be like a tree planted by the water. Well, I don't know. I ain't never been felt like I was a tree. No, wait a minute. Time out. Here's how it works. Blessed is the man who does not find himself in the company of three classes of people, which are all one sinners, scoffers, sinners, and scornful. He avoids that crowd. He avoids anything like that crowd, any effect that that crowd could have on him because that effect that they have on him is the reason that God doesn't bless them. God makes a distinction. Blessed is a man who does not do what they do. They're not blessed. Oh, they got a lot of money. They got a farm paid for and a house and three kids through college, and they've got this. That doesn't mean you're blessed. How many of you know that rich people are not exactly happy? Some of them are. They're not exactly at peace. Some of them worked their whole life, irritable, moody, made a million dollars, afraid to spend it, and died with that stinking stuff, and didn't enjoy any of it, just worried about it the whole life. What good was that? You gain the whole world, and in the end, when you answer to God, you lose it all. That's what sin does to you. It warps things. It makes people miserable. I don't want to start shouting yet, but these are the last days. It makes people miserable and the Bible word wretched. While you look good and you sound good inside, you're all tore up, you're full of confusion. Things don't make sense, can't figure things out. Why doesn't it work for me? Why am I not? House come this and she always had, they always have. Why me? I go to church, I hear the same thing. I bought the tape. I don't even have tapes anymore. I bought the disc. I'm not blessed. You could. Let me say this. You're not being blessed as a choice you make. You choose by what you do, whether you're going to have God on your side, endorsing your life and blessing you, or you're going to choose To reason within yourself that, and you're going to do it that way, and you're going to find that God seems to be afar off with his arms folded, and heaven is like brass. Complaining and just, I don't know about that. I heard all that preaching. I went to that. I tried that stuff once, and that didn't work. Ah, yeah, yeah. You know why people talk like that? Because sin lieth at their door. And they're not blessed. I know you got a good job and a new car. I don't care. You're not blessed. You're not blessed because you're not at peace with your maker. And there's nobody who qualifies as truly blessed who is not at peace with God. A poor man has more than a rich man if the poor man has peace with God. He does. He doesn't worry about things. Faith makes sense to him. To a man who's always worrying, faith doesn't make sense. It just doesn't seem to make sense because you're not blessed. I'm just reading your Bible. What I'm, I'm telling you what your Bible says, trying to make it clear. Blessed is the man. He said, when I kept silent, when I didn't deal with my life, I just roar. My bones, my bones just waxing. Oh, I'm roaring. All That's figurative language to show the kind of decrepit state mentally and spiritually that a person is in because of sin. I mean, that's the state that he's in. Things just seem too complicated. Prayer doesn't seem to work. I try and get nothing for it. I tried that given thing, and all all I got was broke. Would you agree with me that something's wrong? Because God didn't say you would do bad if you did good. Things don't go bad when you do what's right. But the thing that talks us out of right is wrong, and sin is wrong. And wrong is sin. Amen. You can figure that out later. But he said in verse 4, his hand was heavy upon me. What does that mean? What do you see there? If his hand was heavy upon me. It holds me down, doesn't it? In other words, his hand is not lifting me up. It's just the opposite. It seems to be that God is not lifting me up above my problems and trials and setting my feet up. It seemed like his hand is on me, not under me to hold me up. I'm not blessed. Something is not going right in my life. And he said in verse 4 also, he said, Their moisture, you see the word moisture? He said, Thy hand was, for day and night, thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. That's another figurative way of speaking that says it, you're drying up. It's drying up. You used to have moisture used to bring a little juice to the meeting? Or you had a little moisture in your life? Something in my heart like a swamp with mosquitoes. Mosquitoes. Something in my heart, the song says, like a a stream running free. That song sounds like that There's something living inside of a Christian. Something is alive and well. Something that cleanses. Something that is actively flowing, that identifies you as being different than the world and as you used to be. Maybe it's John 7, speaking of the Holy Spirit. Out of your innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. This spake he of the Holy Ghost, who was not yet given, and so forth. I think there should be a water of life in all of us. Something living like that. Psalm 1 again, a man who's blessed. Remember what it said? A man who is blessed. In, in verse 3, he says he should be like a, a tree planted in the Sahara Desert. Proven to the world that a tree can grow in dry places. It's not what it says. He should be like a tree planted by what? the rivers of water. It goes back to water. Water is life. And when your moisture is dried up like the drought of summer, it has to be these he's talking about your life is beginning to wane spiritually. What was once bubbling up inside of you and you were just whatever, it's not like that anymore. You know why? You know why? Do you know why? sin. Isn't that what he's talking about? Your hand was heavy upon me. My moisture dried up like the summer. Why? I'm roaring all the day long. Why? Because of sin. Sin is living. Sin has its reins upon you. It's got its hooks in your jaws. Sin makes you go this way. It doesn't mind you feeling bad. That just adds to your agony. But sin is running the show. I go to church, I try so hard, I quit drinking, I quit smoking, I quit watching bad movies. That doesn't make it right. It's not by works. Jeremiah 2 and verse 22, he said, All your cleansing and all your washing doesn't take away your sins. All your observances of practices and all the things you do as your duty, it doesn't take away your sinfulness. You're still full of gall and guile in God's eyes because that can't change you. Because there's not a thing you can do about it except, well, except what? Let me ask you a question. What can a sinner do? What can a sinful man who recognize say tonight, say you're sitting there tonight and you recognize, you know, I am not doing well. I do not try very hard to do well. I have not this day prayed one single minute. Not 60 seconds of my life has been spent in prayer, not before this meeting, not when I got up, not while I was at work, not while I was driving. All day long, I have not spent any time whatsoever talking to God. I'm full of the Holy Ghost. I have not prayed in tongues in three weeks. Why? What's creeping into people's lives today and, and, and suppressing all of this? I mean, when it first started, it was, woo, And now it's like if anybody does that, what's wrong with him? What is it that's our problem? We can't say, well, we need to deal with... No, our problem is sin, S-I-N. He that knoweth to do what is good but as an act of his will, chooses not to do it to that person, whoever they are, to that person, it it is sin. When sin comes into your life, it begins to replace all the joy in the things you had. It begins to, you begin to get tolerant and you settle down. And, you know, "Eh, we need to get another of this. We need to try, let's paint something, buy something, or try a new program. That's how the big system deal with sin. You live with it. They get to talking about homosexual marriages at first. Oh, no. And now some of the big shots are, well, now, you know, after all, because of sin. You get tolerant. You begin to allow this kind of stuff. Men marry men. Well, you know, that's not the way I would do it. But, you know, everybody has his own right. No, they don't. Nobody has that right. right. The law says it. the law makes nothing right. God makes things right. Doesn't matter what men think or what the world thinks. What it matters is, what does God say? Now, anybody that knows what God says, if you want to hear what God has to say, he will tell you. And he'll tell you what's wrong. He'll tell you what wrong, what is wrong is called sin. And when you begin to know that he's talking to you and that sin is beginning to take its hold in your life, Sin is beginning to have dominion over you. One day you hear the word repent. There's no way you can get away from your sin except by repentance. So you teach repentance and people say, okay, I'm going to, let me tell you something. You can have great remorse and great regret for your weaknesses and your failings. You can labor through half of a night crying with loud tears and crying about how, how awful you have been and what's been done. and this, uh, you, can, you can have the greatest degree of terror in the night about your sins and not give them up. You feel really bad about it. You have great regret, great remorse. But you don't change your mind about it because you'll do it again. So what are we going to do? Now, there is another word for repent, which means change your mind. I'll get to that in just a minute. So what do we do? Well, actually, folks, there's nothing you can do. The only thing you can do is respond to God. Now, when the Bible says, call upon the Lord while he is near, that might have been two weeks ago for you. Are you here? I want you to know that God is not always just hanging around waiting on you. God didn't come around and say, Are you going to do something tonight? He's not waiting on us. You can't repent unless God allows you to repent. Turn 2 Timothy 2 just for a moment. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and look at verse 25. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 25. In meekness instructing those that oppose himself, if God perhaps will give them what? Repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Now listen to me. True repentance, the word metanoia, the the word for repentance or repent, is sorrow and grief over sin. It has to do with being... Deeply sorrow and grief-stricken over the sins that you have committed and turning away from that with abhorrence. You hate it. If you don't really hate what's really tearing you up, if you don't really hate it enough to absolutely turn your back on it and make a decision that I'll never go back that way again, chances are you will go back. Now, not everybody who says I'm sorry, not everybody who repents, not everybody who has a moment stays away from sin. Because the devil knows that, well, like the story about the unclean spirit. You know, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a man, then goeth he and taketh with him seven other spirits. They come back to that house and seen it swept and garnished and all cleaned up. But they found a way to get back in that house. Same old sins, same old temptations, the same old weaknesses. Sometimes it's just the look and the... In the mirror, I'm going to wear that because I know he would like me looking good in this. It's pretty racy. That's a sin. Maybe for you it wasn't. But if it's not modest, it's wrong because it's an enticement. The devil uses that stuff to bring uncleanness and corruption of thoughts in a man's mind. He says, if you look upon a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. Chances are you assisted him in doing that by the way you dress. Wow. Well, how narrow is this life? Pretty narrow. Pretty narrow. That's why a lot of people don't embrace it. Because it requires so much of your life to get so clean. It's not easy to walk away from sin. It's not easy to give up stuff that rules you in the past. It's not easy to, to turn your back on the things that God said, that is what I'm going to judge. Now, if you want to get judged, you keep doing that. And God says, if you're a wise man, you'll turn away from that stuff, and you won't go back to it, no matter how bad you want. Whether it's pornography or alcohol or habits, whatever they are, you turn away from it, because if you don't, it's sin. Sin's what makes you dead and dry. Sin's what takes all the life and the spunk out of you spiritually. Sin is what it is when you read that verse of Scripture and you go home, you can't remember what you heard about what it said or even tell them where it was. Sin. It begins to occupy in a man's life. But when you repent and you see all of that, you turn away from it. You turn away from it because in your mind, in the spirit of your mind, you change. You make a decision right here in your mind that says, I will never go back To that again, I remember this in my life. I didn't understand all the teaching. I just know that the day I turned my life over to the Lord, I made a decision. I don't know how all the words I use. I just made a decision that I'm never going back to that old life. There was a certain amount of fear of whether I could do that or not, but I just said, "I'm not going back. I'm not going back to the same old jokes, the same old stories. I'm I'm not going to hang around the same old guys talking about the same old stuff. All of that is what got me in trouble." If I have to walk away from all those people and come out from among them and be separate, then so be it. I would rather go to heaven hated by man than to be loved by man and rejected by God. You think sin is that big a deal? I think it's much bigger than that. I just think that God is trying to tell us something about how bad it is. But first of all, as I said, repentance is a gift. The gift of repentance, that God would grant repentance, means that you can't repent unless God gives it. Is it possible that God can shut your eyes and your ears where you can't see and hear? Well, you heard words. You saw people. You might have been entertained by it. But nothing that will draw you closer to God and make you more acceptable to Him happens because God Himself can close your eyes. Even his preacher sometimes, he said, they're dumb dogs, they can't bark. It means they can't warn people. They're so guilty of the same things they're warning others about that they'd feel hypocritical if they did that. So you find ways around that, and it's that same old watering down, modifying, altering of what's right. It's called deceit, deception, and error. And it controls people, they learn to live with it, and next thing you know, they think they're right. They see no problem with it. You can't argue with them. You can't debate with them. You can't even change them. I quit trying to witness to them because there's nothing you can do. Once a man has turned a corner, is there such a thing as God gave them up? What do you do with a person whom God has given up? Let's say God has spoken to some people, and we don't know how many times, but God has spoken to a man multiple times. And multiple times a man says, "Ah." I've heard that before. Not right now. I'm not ready for that. There comes a day you'll never hear it again. You'll never be bothered again. You know why? Because your life is not in your hands. Our lives are not in our hands. We are responsible people on this earth. We are responsible to make the right choices. But we can only make good choices when God shows us what good choices are. We can only repent and hate the sin that we have sinned and the way that we have lived when God grants that to us. Look at Acts. Go to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 3 and verse 26. Does it say in your Bible in Acts 3 and verse 26 that God will bless you in turning you away from your iniquities? Who turns you away? How does he do it? He makes you to be aware of it. You get pricked in your conscience. You become convicted of your sins because of what God did. And then God, by his grace and his mercy, opens a door of forgiveness for you. And if you're willing to cooperate, then he applies forgiveness to your life and takes away every sin that ever ruins your life. It's all gone. Though your sins be as... Scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Only God can do that. Only God can do that in his time and as he pleases. Again, he's not waiting on you. You better be waiting on him and find him. Look at chapter 5 and verse 31. A classic verse here about uh, repentance. Talking about Jesus. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. You see the words to give, then it's grace. You cannot get it. You cannot obtain it. It has to be given, offered to you. You cannot just repent anytime you think you want to. Again, I've told this story before, but I used to think when I was growing up, I wouldn't get religious until I was too old to enjoy life anymore. And I thought when I got a certain age, I'll just go ahead and repent. Now, I've learned later, you don't even know if you'll be here tomorrow. You can't say you'll wait until you're 80. You don't know if you'll even be here until you're 28 if you're 27. Your days are numbered. My days are We're numbered. Did you know that? It is appointed. Did you know that God knows everything about us now and tomorrow? He knows the direction you're going, and he's big enough to be personal to every one of us. And yet he requires us to respond to him, and when we're not responding and it becomes sinful and we get cut off, that's Isaiah 59 and verse 1 and 2, then he begins to deal with it. God doesn't want to judge you. Now, he will. Sometimes we we provoke him to judgment. But God would much rather you repent. God desires mercy. And instead of having to judge you and whack you over the head, or worse, chastise you, he offers you various ways. He sends people to preach to you, things you see, things you hear, a dream you had, something that you need to hear that is offensive to God that you need to turn around. Change your mind, get rid of it, because God is loving like that. He's He's tolerant up to a point. I mean, like Nehemiah said, you know, you have not judged us according to our sins. I mean, we were so bad. You You had every right in the world to get totally rid of us, and you spared us. Even though we were sent to another country and... You've allowed us to have the good grace of those leaders and you brought us back to this place. We don't deserve this because God is loving and caring about people. Maybe we should hang on to some of the people that we pray for a little longer than we have because we don't know when God is going to let go. Look in chapter 11. We don't know when or what like that. Acts 11 and verse 18. These were the testimony that Paul gave of going to Cornelius' house. And uh, Paul shows him how the Lord sent him there and all of that that happened was of the Lord. When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then has God also to the Gentiles granted what? You think of it. True repentance. God grants the real thing to you. Not just making you feel bad about what you did, you old mean sorry thing. No, but something much deeper comes and drives into your life and comes into your life with that sense of I must turn away from this. To think that God is as good as he is and I I live as bad as I do. And I turn my back and I've been to church and I've heard all these things for so many years. And yet I just, I keep I keep doing my own thing because of the sinfulness of my life. Why is this grace that God gives, this gift of repentance, this giving repentance or granting repentance, what is it that causes his grace to come to you like that? One wonderful, magnificent word. It's a cousin to, to grace. It's called mercy. Mercy. God has compassion and pity On sinful people. And because of what Jesus did making forgiveness possible. God has arranged for us to have what we have. A message that goes deeper than life. A message that he sent his Holy Spirit to deal with all of us as we hear it. Some people can hear it and walk out and go back into their lifestyle. There's not much hope for those people. They're going to live that way whether you scream and yell at them or not. And yet there's times when the Holy Spirit comes, he comes with such intensity that repentance becomes, as God requires it, genuine and real. A true, genuine turning away from your way of life, the very thing that has caused you to be so offensive to God, and in one moment you turn away from that, and in tears and sorrow you turn to God. Is there such a thing in the Bible that's called godly sorrow? Godly sorrow. Sorrow that God brings. The kind of sorrow that leads to true lifelong repentance. A repentance that never has to be done again. I mean, you don't go back and do that again. You walked away from it. You stay away from it. Are you tempted to go back? Of course you are. You ever have bad days in which it doesn't seem like it's working and who cares? Of course you do. God's testing us. You want to go back? Did Jesus ever ask his disciples if they wanted to leave him? Everybody else did. There's only 12 of them left. That's not much for church. 12 people. He said to them, Will you go with them? Y'all want to go with them? They said, Where would we go? See, they found something greater than their pleasure and their sin. They found the Word of God. And, and in that word, as John wrote, he said, your Word is life. And the life of God was the light to people. It's, it's the most necessary, vital, and important thing there is. Listen to these words about mercy. This comes from the Old Testament, the book of Micah, Verse, chapter 7, verse 18, Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgressions of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. As far as I'm concerned, God had every right in this world to rid the earth of me. He had every right in the world. To, I had my chance. I felt bad about my sins. I was offered repentance and this and that. He had every right for people to talk about how tragic it is. That boy, he was such a nice young man. He was, boy, he had a good future ahead of him. And I just can't believe something like this. He had a right to do that. But I'm, I'm here tonight because of one thing, mercy. God is merciful to the likes of you and me and his mercy comes to us on the royal highway of grace it's God's favor, you can't do anything about it unless he does and he walks in your life offering to do it offering to forgive offering to, offering to cleanse all he wants is for you to be willing and obedient don't take his mercy lightly now don't think that just because you're here that, well, it's going to keep coming. Remember what Rome? maybe you don't remember, but in Romans chapter 9, the Bible says this, he has mercy on whom he will, and whom he will, he hardeneth. It seems to imply that there was no hardness there at, a, at one point, but because of the indifference to God, hardness came. What happens to a man whom God hardens? You tell me. Because he can do that. Turn to Romans 9. I know you're looking, you're not far from one book to the right. Romans chapter 9. See if we can find it. Verse 15, verse 16. For he said to Moses, he said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Is he selective? You better believe he is. He makes a distinction. All of you, you out there in the the world of the electronics, why did God show mercy to you? Look at the people you once knew who have left all of this and gone back to what they used to have, thinking they're doing good now, and all they can do is grumble about politics and complain about this, and that's not fair, that's not fair, this and that. They have no peace, no joy. You're working on it. Have you known anybody like that? Man, I've been here for so many years, I've just known bunches. Bunches. There comes a point, I just don't want to hear more of that. I've heard enough of that. I don't want to keep hearing about that. I guess they're saying because I've already assimilated all of that. I've got all that. Yeah, I can tell. Because it looks like for so many years and a lot of people went in one ear and right out the other because here we are 20, 10, 15, 30 years later and you're not near what you started out to be because sin is ruling in your life and that's the greatest tragedy on this earth. Sin has dominion over a man because they want it to be. But he said, He has mercy on whom He will. Verse 16 So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. It's not how willing you are to do it, it's God who causes this to come. Only God can break your heart. Godly sorrow can only come from God. That's why it says godly sorrow. Sorrow that is brought about by God. I was 28 years old, had no interest in getting right with God. I had no interest. I wanted the benefits of church membership, the social status that you got, being a teacher, a coach, a member of a church, seen in the church, regular attendance, Sunday school, the whole nine yards for my personal gain. Now did God see all of my activity as sin? Every bit of it. Just like the a man plowing his field. Proverbs said, a man plowing his field is sinning while he's plowing. He has no regard for God and the benefits or the fruits of it or the blessing of it. He doesn't ascribe to God any credit at all for what he's done. He worked hard. He got up early. He did this and he did that. And by the sweat of his brow and the sinew on his bones, he, he made it happen. And God is in none of his thoughts. A man sins while he lives. He goes to church he usually quits when he's early in his life, doesn't go back anymore, de- develops a philosophy of "we're all bunch of crooks, all they want is your money, and they never got his. And his money will go to the grave with him, and it'll be part of his judgment. These people that hoard it up and never go and never give. Part of, did you know that part of your, the curse? This is another sermon, but let me just say this. I've already got this far. Did you know the part of the curse on church folks is over money. Yeah. Malachi, you remember that? You have robbed me. Didn't he say that? You have robbed me? And don't make me turn to it because I don't want to take up much time to do it. I want you to take up your time to do it. He said, you're under a curse. They said, what do you mean? He said, you've robbed God. Remember that? Yep. He said, how have we robbed God? He said, in your tithes and Offers. your offerings. People today think tithes and offerings is one word they can't find in the dictionary, tithes and offerings. But a tithe belongs to God. It's entirely his. It was for the Levites because they didn't have any inheritance, grew no land. All they did was serve in the temple. And so he gave the tithe to them. Offerings is over and above a tithe. It's something special, something extra, something that you determine out of your heart. You determine how much you want to get blessed by how you gave. And, And that's a lost thought today. But he says... Both of them, the tithes and the offer. he said, because of this, you're under a curse. Money is going to cause a lot of people to be real disappointed at judgment. I'm just saying that a lot of people are ruled by money because they are ruled by sin. Money and self go together when you're ruled by it. When you're self-serving, selfish, and you're full of iniquity, money becomes a major player in your life. And because you hate to let go of it, even though God enables you to get it, and you won't let go of it and give him whatever he wants about it, whatever it is, then you invite a curse into your life on your family. And a lot of things still don't respond to prayer, that things don't work right, things you're not doing well. You've already told yourself, I can't do this, I can't do that, I can't afford that, and so all this happens, it's a curse. A C-U-R-S-E, a curse. Would you agree with me if I said a curse is a sin? Or sin comes because of a curse? That curses do not come without a reason? There is a reason when a curse comes on a man? Come on now, you know all of that. You should know that. Because of sin. The devil starts right here. Hath God said? He's a master at putting a question mark where God puts a period. Now, did he say that? Do you reckon he meant that? Oh, now, come on. Really, don't you think, God? And people like Eve begin to listen to that. Well, it begins to make sense. It becomes logical, becomes reasonable. She begins to think like the devil. Next thing you know, she gets robbed, brings a curse on all of us. So what's wrong with eating the fruit of that tree? Didn't God say everything was good? Didn't he? Didn't he create the earth and say it's good? So now, are you going to make your own rules now and say you can't eat one particular tree when he said it was good? What kind of theology you live by? What kind of church you go to? And so we begin embarrassed. We draw back. We hunker down and give in to the world's way. That's an antichrist spirit. It's all about sin, folks. It's what sin does to people. What can a man do? Well, not much. But one thing in verse five, it begins by saying, "When when God, he can repent, God grants repentance." So here's what happens when a man does get turned around. Verse five. Are you back? Go back to Psalms 32, and verse five. Verse five. He says, "I acknowledge." There's three things here. He said, "I acknowledge my sin unto thee. I am guilty as charged. I make no excuses for." M- For what I said, what I did, what we did together. What kind of thoughts were in my mind, what kind of words I used, what I watched, how I acted, and the attitude I have. I have no excuse. I acknowledge that you are altogether right, and I am altogether wrong. Your judgments are fair and just. As we'll see in just a minute in Psalm 51, you have every right to judge me because of my sin. Because you're right and I'm wrong. Now I see it. I acknowledge, he said, I acknowledge my sin unto thee. He said, mine iniquity. I have not hid. I make no excuses. I did it. I said it. I went there. I was with them. I washed it. I drank it. I sniffed it. Snuffed it. Tasted it, watched it, and I did it. And with my eyes wide open, God, after having been taught, I've had people. I've had people sit in our church before through the years, not wanted to, but a number guilty of fornication. Amen. How wicked can a heart be? You can do a lot of things in this world, and, and nobody knows what's in your heart. God sees it. I mean, I'm talking about uncleanness and nastiness. Going to church, oh, every week, right like that. Because a man can do that. A sinful man can act that way, but not if he has truly or she has truly repented of those sins at some point, and they've turned their back on. A Christian would not do that. Somebody say amen. Try, try your amen A Christian wouldn't do that. If you're a Christian, you've turned away from your sins. You've turned to God. You're a new creature in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, everything's different now, isn't it? i got to work at it. When I was a basketball coach, there were times, the last year I coached basketball, I coached as a Christian. And I think some of the referees in the ball game were were vile. They were blind and vile. I wanted to give them white canes with a little red tip on it. And there was the year before I got saved, I said some, I called people a lot of bad things. Said a lot of bad things about referees, about their family, They went into their rooms after the game one time, and they went in there and they said, "You're not supposed to be in here." And I shut the door behind me, and uh, to my shame, said a lot of things to grown men that shouldn't be said. And I remember when I got saved, it's just a thing I had about wanting to win so bad, and then got saved, and they would say the same, they'd make the same dumb calls. And I would jump up, and you'd see like the whole school, which had heard about Hamilton's got religion. They were like, What's he going to do? What's going to come out of your mouth? Because it used to be some bad stuff. And I'd get up there and oh, sit back down. Well, then the complaint around school was, well, he doesn't have any fire anymore. Because if he's not up screaming and yelling, then he doesn't have any fire. If he jumps up and screams and yells, then he doesn't have any religion. So finally, religion won. Religion won. But he said also in verse 5, he said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. Turn to Psalm 51 for just a moment so we can let you go home. Psalms 51, not far to the right, just a few pages. Psalms 51, verse 4, your sin, my sin, is a right and just cause for God's judgment. Psalms 51, he said, against thee and thee only have I sinned and have done this evil deed in, in thy sight, that you might be justified when you speak and be clear when you judge. I said in church, I heard all about what we should not be doing, the kind of activity that well, I'm a young person, the kind of activity we should not allow in our life, and I did it anyway. I had no excuse for my sin. I have, there's no way I can convince God that I couldn't help it or it was just too much or too far. You made the choice from beginning to end. All that happened was a choice you made. And the choice was prompted by and birthed by sin. You have nobody to blame but yourself because against God you have sinned. You can sin against me. That's nothing, but you can't sin against God without paying the price for it because everything is written down in his book. It's all there. And he said, a true penitent sinner who is conscious of his guilt, look in uh, verse 9. Hide not thy face from my sins and blot out all mine. You could read this whole chapter. And David, this is a penitent psalm, and he's talking about the multitude in verse 1, the multitude of his tender mercies blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, those same three words. For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. I cannot get away from it. It is there. You want in verse 6, you want us to have have truth in the inner parts, You want us to be clean and pure. I ask you to purge me in verse 7 with hyssop and cleanse me and wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 9 hide again, hide thy face from my sins and and blot out all mine iniquities, and create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And notice the next one. Look at that one. Cast me not. Can that happen? If that can happen, a whole lot of people better wake up. Because I don't know how long we can hear this and be indifferent to it and nothing happen. Because there comes a day, there comes a time, and it's possible. Cast me not away from thy presence, and do not take thy Holy Spirit from me. Don't do that, Lord. I need... I need thee, as the psalmist said, oh, I need thee. The psalmist in Psalm 51, David, apprehends himself. He realizes that he is exactly and precisely what God says he is. That he is as lost as God says he is. And he tells us that only by repenting can he rid himself of his sin and his weakness and be restored in a relationship with the Lord, because without that, he has nothing. What did the prodigal son do in Luke 15? What did the prodigal son do? He wanted to do things his own way, didn't he? He wanted to go boogie in a big city, or he wanted to go live his pleasures. And he got his inheritance. I don't know how they got it then when they're young. I want my inheritance. But he got his. He had a lot of money. And he was, as the world would say, he was cool. And he looked good, he had a lot of friends around him because he had money. And he went wherever he went, and he squandered his money on lustful living. He thought it was fun. Probably got drunk, acted crazy, ha, 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 wasn't that fun? Talked about this and had all kinds of bad relationships with other women and stuff, and ha, 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 ain't that something? Wow, boy, and all that. Oh, yeah, you're cool. And then one day you wake up. You wake up and really you're broke. You're materially broke. You're spiritually broke. You got nothing. You're dead while you stand. You're dead while you talk. You're dead while you walk. You're dead in everything you do because your friends don't want you. God is not there. But God does something for this man the man doesn't deserve. He has mercy on him. He says. He breaks his heart and the man says, I know what I'm going to do. He didn't say that before. I'm going to go back to my father. I'm going to say to my father, I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Can I just come and live here? I'll live in the shed out back. just Just let me come back home. Remember the story? The father gave him a ring. He gave him one of them Brooks Brothers robes or a nice robe. Put shoes on his feet made him to feel like a son, like he was accepted here. I know what you've done. I know what you did with your life. I know what you did last night. I know about all your sins, God does. but when I bring you to me, and I cleanse you because you repent, all of that's behind you. We will not speak of that anymore. You're my son. You're going to look like my son. You're going to dress like my son, and you're going to enjoy the benefits of sonship. That's what the prodigal did. That's the way it ought to be, folks. Now, in closing... In closing, would you turn to Isaiah 55? Let me tell you something that Spurgeon said. I wrote down something that Spurgeon said. He said, Christ and me will never be one until me and sin are two. (laughs) God and I will never be one together until sin and I are two and apart and separated. Amen to that. Sin and hell are married unless repentance proclaims a divorce. Anyway, I'll I'll move right along here. Isaiah 55 and verse 6. Call upon the Lord when? Does that mean he's not always here? I mean, in the sense that you can be determined by him as to what he says? Let me tell you something, all of you. I don't know how to say this any other way than just say it. You cannot dictate to God, even on the basis of his word, at what point you want it and what point you don't. You can say you don't walk out the door and not do it, and that means you didn't want it. But you cannot assume that whenever you want it, it'll be there when you come to get it. Because it says here, you call upon the Lord while he is near. Apparently, a lot of people call upon the Lord, and he's not near. Because it's not on your terms and not on your schedule, but entirely on his. Today is a day of salvation, isn't it? Not tomorrow, not yesterday, today. And the Bible says, call upon the Lord, Isaiah 55, 6 again, it says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Amen. That's the way it should be because he's not always here. Like for tonight, if you're convicted of something tonight of your sins, then tonight is the night that God wants to deal with you. People said, why don't you give altar calls? People you know, want to know why I don't give altar calls. Who would I give it to? Who would I give it to? To whom can I say God wants to save you tonight? He saves whom he pleases, doesn't he? Amen. Saving is his business, not mine. You see, I believe this. I believe you proclaim the message of the truth. I do. This is the way walk ye in it. Now, you deal with it. You deal. If you want to get saved, if you need some help, you come. We'll obviously pray for you. I've done it many times. But my call is not to save anybody. My call is to make disciples. Only God can save. And whom he saves, he saves. Did he save you? I didn't. If he did, he saved you because you heard, you were convicted, and he gave you repentance, and you repented, and you turned your life around, and you begin to walk in newness of life. On that, God did it that way. Go back to Psalms 32 so we can go home. I don't want to keep you any longer. Verse 7 and 8, and I'll close with this. Again, he starts by saying, you're blessed if you're out of your sins. When you're not, you're weary, you're groaning, you're moaning, you're not doing good at all. A godly man will acknowledge his sin and turn away from it because God will grant him repentance. Now, verse 7, thou art my hiding place. It speaks of preservation, the high, high tower that a man runs into. Preservation. Concerning you, he will give his angels charge, and they shall keep you. Why? Because you're God's. The door that has shut God off from you has been removed. Your sins have been separated from you. Now God will hear. You belong to him. Blessed is the man to whom God does not impute iniquity, whose transgressions are gone, whose sins are removed. Blessed is that man. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. Blessed is the man who separates himself from everything that God's judging and will judge. He draws back, and God begins to pour out the blessings on him. You find that every aspect of your life comes under God's control, and he blesses everything. He blesses your home, he blesses your money, he blesses your food, he blesses your relationships, he blesses your peace and your joy. Every day you're just glad to be alive and look forward to living another day. And you're one of the very few people on this earth that has that attitude. Because to the rest of the world there's this dread, this uncertainty, this inability to deal with problems there's confusion about whether God can, is involved in it. It's just don't know. Christians. And there's you. And you're different. Because God at one day in your life broke your heart. That is, He made you hear what you needed to hear in a way that was deep, deep down in your heart, and you begin to be stirred and your heart was broken. You said, Oh God. And you repented. Because he gave you that. And you turned around, and though you're tested with all these comebacks of this stuff and flashbacks, you keep walking in newness of life, and through the tears of the night and the struggles you go through and the sufferings you endure, he begins this blessing. It just comes. It just keeps blessing you. That's the way you should live. Everybody in this room should be blessed. Every one of you. And when you're not... I promise you, sin lieth at the door because God does not make a promise and then refuse to do it unless the thing that is in your life is sin. And people don't like to hear that, but it is is the truth. And he said in verse 7, Thou art my hiding place, thou shalt preserve me from troubles, thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. That sounds really good. I don't know exactly what that means, but it has something to do with something good that God does. You will compass me about surrounded with songs of deliverance. I would assume that God's delivering work is applied to your life. Maybe it's a new song in your mouth. Maybe it's the cheerfulness and joyfulness that you have that God gives. The joy of uh, of, uh, the Lord is your what? Is your strength. Well, of course it is. Amen. You know what the benefit is to all of this at the end as we close? You know what the benefit of your sin being removed is? Clean hands and a pure heart. What does that enable you to do? Turn to Psalm 24. This is it. No more. Psalms 24. Get your memory out. I mean, uh, open your Bible. Go back. Psalms 24. Look at verse 3. What does he say? Let me read it because you can't see it. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Now, if that's not relationship, what is it? Where else? On earth. In your lifetime, where else would you rather be except in his presence? In thy presence there's fullness of joy. At thy right hand are pleasures. What else do you want? How do I get to that right hand? I ascend to there. Who's qualified? Clean hand. Look at it. He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto uselessness vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek the Lord. Is that you? Is he talking about you? Are you that generation? Let Let me give you one more opportunity. I want you to do this just for yourself. When I say that again, I want you to say yes. I know, I know, it's a lot of talk there, but yes, all right? Is he talking about you as being that generation that's blessed because you have clean hands and a pure heart? Thank you. Stand to your feet then. Father, your word is very pure. Your word is very clean. But everything you do, Lord, is said to be clean and pure. We pray that our eyes will continually be opened to see things in a sober and a proper way. That our relationship with you will be as you describe it in the Bible. And that the blessings that you begin to give to us will be the reason we break out in such pristine worship and praise. God has blessed his people. That's what they said about the Israelites. God has blessed his people. I ask you to bless us and continue to deliver us from sin. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.